oh, uh, hi there. You just caught me in the middle of having a little snack. It's, um, it's crushed locusts and honey. A friend of mine recommended it to me. Um, don't know how I really feel about it. He, I mean, he swears by this stuff. He eats it all the time. Um, you might know him, actually. Um, first name, John. Middle name, The. He's from the uh, Baptist family. Do you know him? Well, look, given the weather that we've had this week, uh, I wasn't going to be able to preach on location somewhere in the wilderness. And so that little prop is just to introduce the fact that uh, we are talking about the man today called John the Baptist. And apart from his mm, curious diet and questionable dress sense, I wonder, what do you know about the man? What do you know about John the Baptist? I've been reading through the Gospels recently and I felt stirred to share about him, but it's been a real wrestle to work out what was it about him that God wanted me to share uh, with you today? Because, you know, he would often be depicted just as like a strange street preacher type. But what is it that the Gospels really say about him? What is it that Old Testament prophecy says about him? What is it that Jesus says about him? He was a remarkable man who did some incredible things and said some incredible things, but perhaps most incredible is his character. And that's what I want to share with you a little bit about uh, today. What is it that we can learn from him? But before we jump into it, I just want to pray for us. Yeah, Father, we thank you so much again for your goodness to us, for the joy of just celebrating that right now. Thank you for your kindness, your faithfulness to us. God, you're so amazing. Holy Spirit, we just invite you right now. Would you come and rest on us, rest in this place, wherever anyone might be, in their bedrooms, in their lounge rooms, on their balcony, out for a walk. We pray, Holy Spirit, would you rest on people? Would you prepare our hearts to hear this message? And Jesus, we thank you that you are the hero, not just of history, but of all of Scripture. And we see these quasi-heroes of Abraham and Moses and Paul and John the Baptist who point to you. And as we look at this man's life today, I pray that we wouldn't just learn about him, but that you would shape and mold us more and more into your likeness. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said, don't let uh, John the Baptist's quirkiness um, cause you to underestimate the man. He actually appears in all four of the Gospels, which should give us a little bit of a clue for how important a guy he really was. He isn't just a, an extra in a movie or an NPC, a non-player character in a game. He's a really important uh, guy who plays a really vital role. Actually, if we read in uh, Mark 1, uh, it says this right at the start of Mark. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way. That is a prophecy from Malachi 3, verse 1. Uh, verse 3 carries on. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. That's a prophecy from Isaiah 40, verse 3. So there's very much a sense where the people of God have been not just waiting for the promised Messiah to come, but also been preparing for the messenger who is going to come to them as well. A little bit like how the crowd of people at a wedding will eagerly anticipate the bridesmaids walking down the aisle to prepare the way for the bride to come or the way a, a farmer may look out to the horizon uh, for some clouds that would bring the hope of rain. Or perhaps even the way that uh, you eagerly anticipate the new trailer uh, to drop for your favorite TV show or your favorite uh, movie that might be coming out. Now, what we know that the messenger, the, the, the bridesmaids, the, the cloud, the trailer, John the Baptist himself, like they are not the main event, but they're still really important. There's a great deal of interest, of anticipation and expectation around them. 
Mark carries on in verse four. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. He's a pretty significant figure, right? Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. I didn't rate that, by the way. That was nasty. And verse seven says, and this was his message. After me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. After me comes one more powerful. Now, John obviously played an incredibly important role in preparing the way for the coming Messiah, for Jesus's coming. In fact, actually, not only was his role of such importance that it was prophesied by uh, those two Old Testament prophets hundreds of years prior to him coming, but actually his very conception was miraculous. Not, not quite as miraculous as Jesus's was, but miraculous none the same. Actually, in the Gospel of Luke, it says this in Luke 1, we read that uh, the, the, the priest Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, it says that they were childless because Elizabeth was unable to conceive and they were both of a very old age. They were both very old. Zechariah goes into the temple to burn incense. It's his time to do that. It says in verse 11, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. And then verse 13, this is what the angel said. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you and many will rejoice because of his birth. Verse 15 says he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he was born and he will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So like as a, as a nation uh, prepared for and looked out for and hoped for uh, this coming messenger, you know, th there have been Old Testament prophecies from hundreds of years prior. So too, this aging couple had looked out for and hoped for and prayed for uh, this miraculous conception that was announced by an angel of the Lord. And so we know that his role, it says, was to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. And it says that he came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And that kind of makes sense then of why he was eating locusts with honey and dressed in camel hair with a leather belt, because he's kind of like that Old Testament Elijah figure. He's like a bridge, if you will, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He's like a link between the people of God of old and the people of God in the New Testament as well. So he's a bridge. He's a link. He's a forerunner. And in some ways, he's almost like a, a spiritual sidekick to Jesus. We, we read actually in the Gospel of John that uh, he, he ministered alongside Jesus for quite a period of time before Jesus headed up north. So the gospel show us that he's a really important guy. Old Testament prophecy shows us that he's a really important guy. And people really look up to him. He actually had a whole bunch of his own disciples, uh, men who would follow him around, learning from him, asking him questions. Uh, they call him rabbi in a passage we're just about to read now. And actually in John 3, we see that they are like incredibly devoted. 
In John 3, uh, Jesus is baptizing uh, some people on the other side of the River Jordan, across from where John and his disciples are. And John's disciples get a bit ticked off. And this is what they said to say to him. They say, Rabbi, that man who is with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one that you testified about, look, he's baptizing and everyone's going to him. Like John's disciples were fiercely loyal, incredibly loyal. So, so loyal, in fact, that they actually kind of kept following uh, his commands and following him decades after he had died. We read in Acts 19 of when uh, Paul, on one of his missionary journeys, goes to the great city of Ephesus to plant the church in Ephesus, where we get the letter of, uh, to the Ephesians from. When he goes there, he meets some of John's disciples decades later in 53 AD. They're still around decades later and, and he meets some of them and he says to these guys are oh, like did you receive the holy spirit when you believed and they're like holy spirit we didn't even hear there was a holy spirit so paul says well what baptism did you receive and i said oh we're john's guys well we were baptized by john he says ah okay well let me let me lay hands on you pray for you and then there's this incredibly powerful moment where the holy spirit descends on them they start prophesying and praying in tongues now, John the Baptist is this incredibly influential figure in Jesus's day. He wasn't just like this street preaching wild man who stood on a wooden crate and yelled at passers-by, which he can often be depicted as. He was like a rock star of his day. Yeah, like a rock star with a you know, questionable diet and dress sense. But don't all rock stars have a questionable diet and dress sense? But so what? Like, well, what does all this really matter? What does this actually tell us about the guy? And he had a lot of followers, a lot. He was like an influencer in his day, in the original sense of the world. He influenced a lot of people. But what did he influence them towards? Well, I think that actually just coming up in this passage in John, he utters these eight words, which for me are like the summation of his entire life, the summation of what his purpose was and the summation of what his character was like. You know, he's just uh, about to rebuke uh, his disciples for um, being so territorial and, and being concerned about Jesus baptizing on their patch and, and, the, and, and demonstrating like almost like professional jealousy. And this is what he says to them in John 3. He says, guys, guys, he must become greater and I must become less. And for me, these eight words are like the summation of John the Baptist's purpose and his character. And I wonder, church, could they be our refrain? Could they be the refrain of church for the city that he must become greater and I must become less? You know, with all that's going on in church at the moment, you know, planning to regather and after regathering, you know, thinking about Christmas and what's coming up there. And as we work towards autonomy and all that's associated with that, you know, rethinking ministry and, and our purpose and what God's calling us to and, 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 you know, all the branding and the marketing and the websites and all that stuff that's associated with it. You know, like in the midst of all that stuff is the trajectory of the heart of our community that he must become greater and we must become less. Is that what's in our heart? Is that the cry of our heart? Like clearly that was the purpose of John the Baptist's life. Like he, he prepared the way for the coming Messiah. He heralded his coming. He pointed people to Jesus. That was what he was all about. But it wasn't just what he did. It was the way he went about doing it. That I speak, think really speaks to his heart and speaks to his character. Now, Scripture is so often full of uh, 
like contrasts, these things, themes or ideas that seem to be in tension with one another, but actually when they're held well together in balance, they paint this beautiful, compelling picture for us. And I think John the Baptist's life is like a life of contrast. It's a life in tension, particularly in the way that he views himself compared to the way that Jesus views him. Let me give you some examples of that. You know, people were asking John, John, are you, are you like Elijah? Are, are you a prophet? And he's like, no, 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 guys, no, no, it's not about me. And then Jesus comes along and in Matthew 11, he says, yeah, he was a prophet, but more than a prophet, more than a prophet. And people are like always asking John, John, are you, are you like the Messiah? Like you seem like a really big deal. Who is it that you are? And John's like, oh, no, no, don't, don't worry about me. There's someone far greater who's coming. And then Jesus comes along in Matthew 11 again and says, of all born of woman, there has not been anyone greater than John the Baptist. He's the greatest that's ever lived. And in perhaps mo the most like beautiful contrast in John the Baptist's life, do you remember what he said when he said, there is one coming after me who's the straps of his sandals, I am not worthy to stoop down to untie. Do you remember him saying that? And then Jesus comes along to John and says, John, would you baptize me? Like, John's like, what are you kidding me? Baptize? No, no, it should be the other way around. But he gets to baptize Jesus. And then in that moment, he gets to witness an open heaven. And he gets to hear the audible voice of God and watch the spirit descend on Jesus like a dove. And then he gets to partner with Jesus and work alongside him in ministry. He gets this incredible moment. So like, forget what the gospels say about Jesus, forget what uh, Old Testament prophets or even the angelic visitation might mean. Think of the words that Jesus says about John the Baptist, more than a prophet and greater than anyone who has ever lived. And what he got to experience as well. What made John the Baptist so great? I want to suggest to you that what it really came down to were two things. One, his humility and his unconditional surrender. His humility. James 4.10 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the Lord, and he will lift you up. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. You know, people were asking John, are you the Messiah? Are you, are you Elijah? Are you a prophet? He's like, guys, no, 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 no. Like, don't worry about me. I really want to introduce you to someone who's far more important than me. And Jesus comes along and says, actually, he's more than a prophet. There's been no one greater who's ever lived. He humbled himself and was lifted up by God. Humility. Rick Warren says that in The Purpose Driven Life, that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it is thinking of yourself less. C.S. Lewis says it like this. He says in uh, Mere Christianity, the truly humble man will not be thinking about humility. In fact, he'll not be thinking about himself at all. So the first step to attain in humility is to realize that one is proud, to realize that one is proud. And that's a bigger step too. If you think you are not conceited, it means that you are very conceited indeed. Not pride in the human heart is a really big deal. And it's not just a deal for some people. It's not just like some people struggle with pride. Pride is in every human heart. Tim Keller says it like this. Tim Keller says that pride is like carbon monoxide. You don't see it. You can't always hear it. 
but it's slowly killing us and we don't even realize it. St. Augustine said that pride is like the putrid petri dish in which all other sins fester. Pride's a really big deal, but humility. John the Baptist didn't think less of himself, but he did think of himself less. He said, he must become greater and I must become less. And I, and I, like, I think that most of us really do want Jesus to become greater. I think like as best as we can know in our hearts, I think we honestly really all truly want to see Jesus exalted. The, the struggle is we move from that he must become greater and I must become less to he must become greater and I wouldn't mind becoming a little bit greater as well. Like that's what so often happens. But to really say like, no, I don't want to, I don't, I, I actually want to become less. I, I want to disappear into the background. I, I, I want there to be less of me. I want to be forgotten. I don't want anyone to even really think of me. That's a totally different story. That's a whole other level. And, and like, I'm just being honest here, but honestly, I, I want people to think well of me. I struggle when people don't think well of me, but I don't want to live my life like that. I want to live my life so that people think well of Jesus and they think very little about me. That's how I want to live my life. And I believe what John the Baptist is saying here and what we can learn from this is that this isn't a like share the spotlight kind of thing with Jesus. It's not like he's just like slightly greater in priority, but we get to ride the coattails of his glory and you know, get the crumbs of his splendor and like the perks of um, his coattails, so to speak. No, like for Christ to become greater, we must choose to become less. Actually, the, the, the verse immediately preceding this great verse in uh, John 3, verse 29 says that the The bride, this is John speaking, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom, like the best man, waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. And then John says, that joy is mine and it is now complete. Now, I don't want to be crude here, but it's not like the best man gets a little bit of the bride for himself. The bride is all the grooms and the best man is stoked about that. He's joyful about that. And like John is not only willing to become less, but actually he is joyful about Jesus arriving on the scene and taking the spotlight entirely. He is stoked about that. And guys, like Jesus has arrived on the scene in our lives. Like if, if we are followers of Christ, if we're Christians, Jesus has arrived on the scene in our lives. Are we joyful that he gets the preeminent position in every area of our life? And is the trajectory of our heart humility towards him becoming greater and greater and us becoming less and less? And I have no doubt that most of us, if not all of us, do want Jesus to become greater in every area of our life. But are we willing to become less in order for that to happen? Are we willing for that? And are we joyful about that? You know, there are areas in life that in your life, in my life, in our life, where Jesus needs to become greater. And there are areas of your life and my life and our life where we need to become less. So let me ask you, is he greater and are we becoming less in our families? Are our families orientated around Jesus and his mission? Or if you looked at our families from the outside, would you think we were much more preoccupied with our ideas about what our kids should be or do than we are about what Jesus might say? Is 
he becoming greater and are we becoming less in our career? Are we willing to stay where God has called us or to move on to where God has called us just because he's called us? A young couple among us recently lay aside a career opportunity because they wanted to serve Jesus and his mission more effectively. That's wonderful. Are we willing for him to become greater and us to become less in our health? Or are we so concerned with polishing the outside of the cup that we never allow any time or space for the Holy Spirit to really do a work on the inside of the cup, which is of much greater importance? Is he becoming greater or are we and are we becoming less in our in our choices and in our future? You know, are we are we carving out our own plans or are we allowing him to order our steps? Is he becoming greater and are we becoming less in our finances? Do we live as though like everything is his anyway? Or do we really believe that our income and our savings are the means by which we will experience pleasure and we will experience security in this life? You know, maybe Jesus is like greater in all of these different areas, but is the trajectory of our heart that he's becoming even greater and we are becoming less and less? In what area of your life are you unwilling to relinquish control of and to surrender to him? At the end of the Civil War, uh, General Grant was like so completely committed to the total conquest of the Confederate South that newspapers at the time joked that maybe the initials US actually stood for unconditional surrender. And then you know, decades later, President Roosevelt, along with Prime Minister Winston Churchill and Joseph Stalin, all agreed at the Casablanca Conference in 1943 at the end of World War II that nothing short of the absolute, total and utter unconditional surrender of the Japanese and the Germans would do. And this is what they said. They said there could be no meaningful future for rebellious people unless they had thoroughly renounced their failed ambition to rule. Unless they had thoroughly renounced their failed ambition to rule. Now, like that's basically the call of the Christian life to thoroughly renounce our failed ambition to rule. But like what the gospel doesn't call us to is it doesn't call us to purposelessness or to passivity, to like just allow our will and our our, our you know, purpose to like wither and die. That's not what the gospel calls us to. That's not what John the Baptist was about. He was very much committed to his mission and his mandate, but he just didn't let it go to his head. Like we have been born again into kingdom life and into kingdom purposes and kingdom significance. That's part of what we've been born into. And that's, and that's what characterized John the Baptist's life. He said, like, I've totally surrendered my ambition, my plans, my control. He must become greater. I must become less. And so like, we rightly hero Abraham and, and David and Paul and these, you know, figures in Scripture. But like so often, you know, John the Baptist is remembered more for his questionable dietary preferences than he is for the quality of his character. Jesus said more than a prophet, the greatest who has ever lived. And yeah, like by virtue of where he appears in the gospel account, like his life is totally eclipsed by Jesus's life. But you know what? I, th I think he kind of wanted it that way. I think he was totally happy with that. My friends, what, 
What areas of our life are we still fighting with Jesus for our share of the spotlight? Are we willing to release those things, to surrender those things and to join in the refrain of John the Baptist and say he must become greater and we must become less? God bless you. Love you heaps.